Well, thank you so much, Michael, for, for joining me today. Really, really excited to talk about a lot of interesting things and, and the impact investing space around you know, food and, and technology and, and just overall the emergence uh, of sort of the sector of impact investing and, and perhaps where do you, where, where we are now, maybe where you see that going. But let's start just a little bit about, you know, your journey in, into the sector of impact investing and maybe how you got there. Um, let's start there and then we'll get into some goodness. It started at Morgan Stanley right out of college. I got into wealth management. I wanted to really focus on a particular niche and not just be a generalist and mm. landed on the idea of serving the LGBT community. I had grown up in the West Village of New York during the 80s and 90s and, you know, it was just very connected to that community uh, from that experience. And uh, at the time, the marriage laws in the U.S. were not on an even playing field. And so there were disadvantages uh, to same-sex couples uh, on a number of levels. And so I thought that would be kind of a great opportunity to serve a community that was near and dear to my heart uh, and also do well in the process. And uh, it was in working with some of my clients that the questions started to come up around, you know, how do we avoid investing in companies that basically don't like us, uh, you know, right. <laughs> and that was, you know, the first you know, time I had sort of thought about social responsible investing or even had to inquire as to whether that was a thing and could we do it. And that was basically the spark that led me down the rabbit hole of sustainable investing uh, and impact investing. My heart, you know, told me that at some point the laws would change and I would need to effectively shut mm -hmm. down, you know, the niche that I had been operating. And so sustainability and impact became this exciting thing that I could start looking towards as the next theme once the laws start to shift, which they did in 2014. And so I had a couple of years to sort of get, you know, my pencil sharpened and to learn, you know, as much sure. as I could to, you know, really start doing that well. And, you know, I've been running with it ever since. So over that, that time period, you've seen, obviously, this sector sort of grow into every different, I think, business sector at this point has been touched in some way of whether it's social responsibility, whether it's impact, socially conscious. I mean, there's all these different terms, right? But, you know, essentially, the idea that, you know, maybe business can be done a little better and, and go even further, the allocation of capital can be right. done better and in, in, in investing in certain companies. What, I guess over you know decades now, like how have you seen the industry change and ha have you seen it change for the better in that you know we see greenwashing and sort of from a brand corporate side is that still a factor that you see maybe investors themselves right allocators of capital getting into industry because it's a bit trending and, and does that that rub you the wrong way a little bit? Do you see a lot of that? Well, you know certainly in the last 10 plus years, uh, you know impact investing has gone from being something that people, we're like, you know, like, what is that? Like, what, what is yeah. that charity? Uh, you know, right. there was sort of a confusing thing that uh, most people didn't quite understand, certainly didn't think was viable. So I was definitely wearing sort of the dunce cap uh, on Wall Street for a while, you know, doing this sort of fringe thing. And now, you know, fast forward to where we are today, and it's on the lips of just about every investor for the most part, or right. they're aware of it, they understand it's a thing, they may not buy into it, but it's now, you know, sort of a broad ecosystem, uh, you know, sort of component. To your point, there still uh, is a substantial amount of greenwashing going on, particularly because you have a lot of providers, whether they be banks, or asset managers uh, who know they need to make the pivot, but for various business or other operational constraints, they don't have the infrastructure to really deliver on that. And so the easiest thing is to you know, put a label uh, on a strategy and say they're doing X, Y, and Z, uh, when in reality, they're not, I'd say, taking a more genuine impact forward approach to uh, whatever strategy they're managing. The greenwashing is, I'd say, most commonplace in the public markets, uh, you know, which is where you're investing in stocks and bonds. Right. 
anything that's liquid, it's harder to get away with that in the private markets because the companies that you're backing are usually so you know pure, for lack of a better description, and what they're trying to attack. So it could be it's embedded know, in the foundation of their company. They they don't have to segue to something different, create a whole new business model. It just is who they are. Yeah, and it's often why they started the business in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Often you have entrepreneurs who are, you know, either coming out of school, have left school, maybe left McKenzie, maybe left, you know, a cushy job and are saying, all right, I, you know, I want to tackle X. I want to tackle gender. I want to tackle, you know, climate change. I want to tackle uh, animal welfare, whatever it might be. And I'd say that's the biggest difference today that you didn't have anywhere near as much of 10 years ago, or arguably even five years ago is like this, the sheer number of entrepreneurs who are either starting companies or starting funds uh, or leaving their jobs to join, uh, you know, companies and funds like that. Uh, so there's just so much more to choose from. And so I think it's easier to invest in the private markets, uh, and, you know, to a degree to avoid greenwashing, uh, but harder to get access to the good stuff uh, because it's harder to find. So that's where advisors like me play a role is to help investors, families, and so on to find the good stuff uh, that you can't find on a Morningstar or right. syndicate or somewhere where uh, it's easier to do so when you're investing in the public markets. When somebody comes to you or, or just in, in general, if, you, if you're talking to individuals and they ask, like they hear the word, right? And impact investing in their circles or just in a general you know, nature of, of conversation in society, how do you explain it to them? Do you have the pitch down, Pat, or... It, do, you, do you depend on who you're talking to is the length you'll take it to in like a description? Yeah. I mean, my answer is usually it depends uh, on how you define it. Mm -hmm. because it's a very yeah. personal thing, what impact means, uh, you know, technically everything has an impact, uh, yep. both positive or negative. Uh, I, I tend to think of impact investing and it's certainly defined as such as an investment where the intention uh, is to have mm. an impact. Uh, and so that's, you know, I think pretty, you know, accepted uh, nomenclature on how to define it. Uh, but then when you get into the weeds, you know, for some people, the passion is, uh, you know, supporting, you know, uh, women in the marketplace. Uh, for others, it might be smallholder farmers. For others, it might be right. access to healthcare. Uh, and so part of the fun for me is I don't have to tell people what it means. I yeah. get to back and say, please tell me what it means to you. Um, and if, you know, if I can, I'll be there to help guide that defining process. Cause you know, for, certainly for newer investors, they, they maybe know at the top level what they want right. you know, to focus on, or, or maybe it's just a general feeling of, I just want to do good with what I've been lucky enough to either uh, inherit or, you know, create, and I need help to figure out how to do that well. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very personal thing, but I certainly think that the biggest impact, you know, themes are climate, food, and equality. Uh, so that's where I encourage the people I work with to focus on as much as possible. And certainly, you know, in my own personal investments and within our organization, where we lean in as much as possible, because we think the, the impact leverage, if you will, is highest in those themes. And then ideally, if you can, you try to find investments that, you know, can touch all three. So maybe that means a, um, you know, an investment that uh, is focusing on food that has substantial climate and environmental outcomes. Right. Uh, that is run by a diverse team. All the themes kind of go back to to climate in general, right? Like almost every single sector has <laughs> some type of effect on the climate. Let's talk about food a little bit. That seems to be something that you're you're passionate about, and sort of the the writings you've been doing, and, and sort of just your overall professional life lately. Like when when has when did food come into your preview as as a real way to you know tackle health, but also tackle climate issues as well? 
the catalyst was my wife. Uh, we met in 2012 and uh, she very quickly started to educate me on uh, <laughs> things like factory farming and uh, animal welfare yeah. and all sorts of things that were completely, you know, not on my radar. Yeah. And um, similarly, you know, to what had happened with me professionally in my career of falling down the rabbit hole, I just really, you know, fell hard uh, for this theme. It became, you know, just like my life passion. Uh, I got super excited about it once I really learned what, you know, was going on in the food system. Uh, it seemed to me, you know, kind of crazy that, you know, I and, and many others are, you know, are still and, uh, and were really unaware of, you know, what goes on in our food system and the tax it has uh, on the planet, yeah. on humans and on the animals in the system. And so uh, I got really excited because it was like, well, people kind of, you know, talking about fossil fuels and, you know, they're talking about housing and micro lending, but when I looked around and, you know, this was back in 2012, you know, I didn't see really much on food uh, in a broad way. And so it also seemed like an opportunity for me where if I could try to bring more attention to this theme, you know, as an important impact investment that, you know, could have even more leverage in my efforts, as opposed to focusing on something like energy or housing, where there was already a lot of effort, you know, sort yeah. of being done. And so uh, that, that's, that's why I chose it and, and I've been running with it ever since. Yeah, there's and just from that 2012 to now, so let's I mean let's just call it a decade for for easy math. There's been quite a bit of innovation, obviously from lab grown and sort of plant based and cellular agriculture. Now I'm learning a bit more about, which is to me one of the most fascinating things. Uh, regenerative agriculture, sort of understanding right. farming better and looking at farmers as they should be like celebrities and known more, right? I mean they they are the people who like. Absolutely. drive humanity every day it's it's crazy kind of that they're so unknown and, and and don't necessarily have a voice of their own it, it's a bit it's a bit odd family farm like obviously commercial farming is, is a bit right. different but i mean like the people who just you know keep it in the family and just do every day every year every decade it, it's it's pretty in, insane when you look at the supply chain and how everything works but since that decade that you've kind of you know thrown a lot of your energy at it what are the innovations you've seen that have been really been positive well, uh, you know, you touched on all of them. I mean, certainly, you know, within plant-based, the innovations that have manifested to just finally, in my opinion, create products that people want to eat. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, plant-based has been around forever. Uh, you know, tofu you know, in the yeah. Asian community, you know, going back, you know, it's hundreds of years. Uh, and even, you know, recently companies like Tofurky and, and others that were in the marketplace, but outside of the, you know, the vegan and vegetarian community, nobody was eating this stuff because, you know, for the most part, it didn't resemble the products that they know and love. No. And so it's been the innovation within plant-based to really more accurately mimic the mouthfeel and taste and experience of meat and chicken and fish and pork and so on uh, has, has been substantial. The two complements to that have been, you know, precision fermentation, where you've got companies that are basically taking, uh, you know, bacteria and other, uh, you know, sort of materials and expressing them in ways uh, to create dairy proteins and egg white mm -hmm. proteins and, you know, gelatin uh, without needing an animal. And, you know, the potential for that to uh, serve as ingredients uh, for the food supply chain is uh, really, I think, an underappreciated story, even though there are a few companies that have raised some substantial capital uh, in, in a couple last couple of years. Um, and then you touched on a cellular ag. I mean, this is the real, I'd say the biggest question mark looming over the food system is, can this really you know, work? Can it, can it scale? And how hard is it going to be to get 
both the regulatory uh, ecosystem and consumers to get on board. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm optimistic about cellular ag. Uh, I think that consumers are actually going to be way more receptive to this than the current polling suggests when they do like you know, consumer data. Um, yeah. I think the biggest question mark is going to be regulation. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's going to be sort of a, a domino effect where you're going to have countries, which has already happened, like Japan and Singapore, creating regulatory approval for these products into the market. And then I expect more within Asia to, you know, sort of manifest as a result of that as more, you know, production and capacity is possible to, you know, make that regulatory approval, you know, necessary. And then, you know, likely, you know, you'll see the US and then probably last will be Europe. Uh, and then eventually it'll be, you know, a reality. I'd say, you know, that's the trinity of sorts for yeah. the, you know, alternative protein, you know, space. And then, you know, to a, you know, lesser effect, but equally important is what you're seeing in ag tech, which is, uh, you know, food waste technology. So you have companies like Appeal mm -hmm. as an example that are creating really novel ways to try to reduce the amount of food waste and the uh, carbon footprint of the supply chain. Because if you can, you know, ship avocados uh, on, a, on a boat instead of via plane, you know, that's a game changer. Um, you know, if you can minimize 40 to 50% of that waste, you know, massive amounts of water, energy, uh, and other, you know, sort of inputs that, you know, don't end up in a landfill creating methane yep. and so forth. So, you know, to me, th those are the, the things that I've been most excited by. And then I'd say the last theme is what's going on with, you know, fungi or, or fungus just in general. Um, so mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, mushroom-based meats, uh, mushroom-based, uh, which is less, you know, food-related, but you know, mushroom-based like leather and plastic and packaging. Uh, and then to an extent, you know, what's happening in psychedelics, I think there's just, you know, mushroom as a theme or the things that can yeah. come out of fungus uh, is, is, is becoming a bigger deal now and will probably be even more of a big deal in the next five to 10 years. It's like an entire ecosystem just in fungi. Like there's so many different applications that can be used for that. Literally that one organism can produce right. so many different things in so many different verticals. It's really, it's really amazing. I wanted to touch back on just from the cell ag point of view, just so like, to be clear, like, I think the way I understand it is that you can essentially like utopian idea kind of walk into a restaurant let's let's say a steakhouse right and you could like maybe it's on a family farm or something and you can like eat outside and look at the cow or or the bull or whatever the animal is that you're actually eating from because they don't have to kill no longer have to kill the animal you just take sort of the dna or, or something from a, a a living animal and then they can sort of recreate sort of that same feel you would get if that animal was slaughtered but you could also say thank you to that animal and go over and like hug them or something right like it, it's it's really kind of crazy but also like i don't know it seems like i, I guess the the negative side would, would sort of be what i guess from a, like you said a regulatory standpoint what is i guess what are the hurdles to face there for that not to to be okay to, to sort of do the hurdles are uh, more just from a scale and practical standpoint you're basically trying to create an industry from scratch that requires a, a fairly substantial amount of infrastructure because you have to you have to create these cell lines right so as you right. say you're, you're harvesting cells let's say from a particular cow or a particular chicken or a particular pig or fish uh, you know, you name it and yeah. you want those cell lines to be strong and like any other, you know, human, some, you know, have better cells than others. And yeah. so, you know, part of the work is finding the best cell lines that are best, you know, sort of, you know, structured for uh, replication. Um, secondly, you have to create a, a scalable medium, uh, which is basically the thing that mimics the role of blood that allows the cells to multiply like they would 
on the body of an animal or like in our system. And historically, that's been the trickiest part is, you know, because they had to use what was called fetal bovine syrup before, which is basically the blood of an animal kind of defeats the purpose. And it was, you know, it's not consistent. Um, it's expensive. And so the, uh, the effort has been in this industry to create a suitable replacement for that, um, that you didn't require an animal for, um, both for, you know, for price, but also for consistency, because like anything else, if you look at McDonald's or any other, you know, massive yeah. business, what they can do is they can create a repeatable product, you know, a billion times in a row. And it just will not be any yeah. different. You can scale it. Yeah, exactly. And so the, you know, companies are now, whether it's uh, Upside Foods or a number of others are coming up with these uh, plant-based uh, serums that can, you know, replace the previous technology in which these cells can grow within. And then as these cells replicate, then you need to put them in a bioreactor where you can create a process by which those cells converge on one another and actually turn into the fibrous muscle that you would normally expect to be produced if it was on the body of a cow or a chicken. And that's in a, a crude example of how you can basically take a cell and grow meat. Um, but there's a lot of moving parts to do it. And much like trying to create, you know, the Model T, um, you know, it's it's not easy. You know, you're going from the horse to the car and sure. it's, it's you know, it requires a lot of engineers, a lot of science, a lot of money and a lot of time. And so the good news is, is that there's so much money flowing into this space now and so many smart people focusing on it and large corporates and food companies buying into wanting to, you know, build the, the backbone of this industry because they see a future in it that it's happening much faster. And you can leverage things like AI and me. Your machine learning and all sorts of other stuff to also give you a little extra speed in the process. And so you have companies that are making meat now. Uh, so it's not a question of whether we can do it. Uh, it's just a question of, can you do it at a price and at a consistency where you could actually compete with the meat that comes from factory farms, because that's really what they're going to be competing with. Not the, uh, you know, the cows that are being grown on the farms in a regenerative right. way. I don't gotcha. necessarily see that world going away. Uh, if anything, I could see that becoming more in demand, kind of going back to how we used to raise and treat animals and really trying to focus on getting rid of this factory farming model, which is what's causing the majority of the problems in our food system from a climate standpoint, water, land, uh, foodborne illness, and a host of right. other things, not to mention you know, the way in which we treat the animals in the system. So Cellular Ag is trying to aim at that because there are certain things right now plant-based just can't achieve um, yeah. you know, to replicate. And so the question is, how can you leverage what Cellular Ag can do with what plant-based can do and maybe Blend those together, hybrid yeah. products? So an example would be what's happening now is you have companies that are making cellular fat, which is easier to achieve. So you can basically grow the fat that you would get off of a cow, which has certain properties and flavors and whatnot, and then mix that with the plant-based product that is lacking that. And then you could get kind of the benefits of the plant-based, which has health advantages and inject some of the fat from the animal, which gives you better performance. And that, you know, can get you closer to achieving the ideal product faster than trying to grow, you know, a complete burger through the cellular, you know, landscape, which is, you know, just a little bit further off for the standpoint of being able to produce it globally. And it's also interesting. I always look at it from, try to look at it from a bunch of different lessons. Blends is both from a development world standpoint and also from like a developing world standpoint where, you know, people die of starvation, right? Every right. year. And, and how do you solve hunger at a place where you can't grow food, <laughs> right? right? Or it's lack of nutritious food, but also sort of these, you know, in areas of the world where killing endangered species, right? To eat is a thing, right? But what if you could take the cells of a shark and have shark without killing a shark, yeah. right? 
So then, it, then it, you can kind of serve all these different angles of like the most, you know, impoverished people in the world. Like, how do we feed the world nutritiously? You know, not just feed the world with, you know, crap, but, right. you know, actually nutritious food. But then also serve, you know, a developed class that is, is pardon the pun, but like hunger for different types of, of, of food, right? Or different types of entertainment or taste, right? It, you can serve these both purposes without sort of, obviously killing animals, but then also the effects on climate, perhaps solve hunger in a, in a lot of different ways. Do you see anything, do you see anybody working in the field of, of that? And maybe it, it's almost, I look at regulation where it's, if you look at how you can solve a systemic social issue, like first, perhaps that is like what regulation can move on and say, hey, we can use this to like go to the UN and have them pass something like, hey, let's feed the people who don't have no food. Like they're going to, they're dying. So like a simple, like, can we make like an emergency use of something like this to feed people, right? Like something right. like that. No, I hear where you're right going up. with it. I mean, I, I think what you're touching on is, is critical because uh, as you mentioned, there are a lot of people who are food insecure around the world. And because of uh, an ever increasing, uh, you know, volatile climate, it's only going to get harder to grow food. Uh, mm -hmm. And so having technology that allows us to grow more of our food uh, indoors uh, is going to be critical mm. for ensuring the uh, stability and resiliency of the, of the supply chain. And COVID just gave us a little bit of a glimpse of other factors that uh, can influence a, you know, very uh, sort of imperfect, you know, supply chain. So if you can create a more decentralized supply chain where you can grow produce and mm -hmm. meat and other things regionally and right. not have the avocados coming from South America. Right and the tuna coming from Japan and so on and so forth, you know, you can do a lot more to eliminate the challenges within the supply chain currently, but also national security issues as well, because totally. you know, countries are going to probably start getting a little bit less generous with the food they're willing to share with other countries. Um, if, you know, the planet continues to, you know, get more and more challenged as uh, it looks like it, you know, absolutely will at an increasing pace. And so vertical farming is a great example of that. You know, they're trying to figure out how to, you know, grow more things indoors or even just indoor farming, which where you are in the Netherlands, they have yeah. you know, pretty much perfected. Uh, they supply, I think, the second largest amount of food globally, and they do it on 1 27th of the land that the U.S. does. It's because they're growing yeah, so much small country, yeah. indoors. Uh, and so, you know, you look at countries like Singapore that import 90% plus of their food. This is mm. why they're focusing on this technology is because they understand that um, this is a national security issue. Uh, it's a resiliency issue, and it's a sustainability issue. And so I think all of that will then feed into uh, supporting the emerging and frontier economies, because if, if you can scale this technology, it will become even cheaper for these countries to afford it, right. to install it, and be less you know, beholden to the developed market, uh, which has historically been terrible in the way that they've yep. treated these, uh, these people and these countries. And so that's kind of the beauty of the food system for me and for others is there's so many ways in which if we can improve and fix the way we make food, all these challenges can be other answer. Yeah. All these ancillary positive effects start to happen. And when I had spoke to uh, another person about sort of, you know, the, the food systems and, and sort of basically had making this transition. And I was like, all this seems so great. And I was like, there's one, like, it's great for, you know, the capital allocators and the companies, because there's a lot of money to be made here, right? And for governments, I think there's a lot of positive, you know, social aspects to this that we just talked about. I'm like, why is it so hard? And he was just like, well, the supply chains are so ingrained in how they've done things for like 50 years. It's like, you can't, the supply chain is so hard 
to change, right? That you can make the parallel to like governments, right? You just, they can't, they're not built to change and adapt and move fast. And so he's like, you really have to create a brand new food supply chain system, like, you know, built for this. And that's, and that's a long journey. And that's, that's a hard road. And so the, the key is, you know, some of these things, like we talk about cellular ag, you know, we're going to take a lot more time because of the infrastructure. And then there are other things like within plant-based that are easier because you're relying on existing technologies for extrusion. Uh, you're, you're relying on, you know, bases mm-hmm. like soy and pea and other things that we, you know, we make in massive quantities, you know, so there are ways we can bridge the gap uh, to create a little bit more time for these other technologies that require, you know, a lot more investment and a lot more, you know, progress, you know, to, to get to the point where they can scale. The biggest challenge has been getting governments to take this issue seriously. Everywhere, just about I, I've looked across the globe, they seem to still not really get you know what needs to happen within food. Uh, everybody seems to, whenever you hear about climate change, talk only about fossil fuels as if that's the only challenge. Right. Uh, whereas food yeah. is equally, if not more, uh, taxing on the planet on a whole host of uh, issues. And so uh, I think you know the biggest failure thus far has been governments you know talking about this. Uh, actually creating incentives like they did in energy for solar and wind to Mm. uh, make it easier for these companies to compete, uh, to try to reorganize the way subsidies are delivered, uh, to disincentivize, you know, this model that is, you know, not built for the long term. Uh, And so it's really tough. Uh, I'm a board member of and advise a number of different nonprofits who work very hard at this issue of trying to get policy to move the needle. But like any other industry, you have so many ensconced titans uh, who don't want this change yeah, that they absolutely. are working uh, diligently to prevent that from manifesting, at least until they can position themselves to benefit from it, you know, really slowing things down. And so, you know, the only good news is, is that the major consumer uh, products and goods companies, whether it be Nestle, Unilever, uh, and so on, you know, are pivoting pretty hard uh, towards plant-based, towards, you know, organic, thinking more about regenerative you know, in addition to their, you know, plastics and other, you know, things, they're becoming less of a problem. Uh, I think they're still haven't pivoted enough to really, you know, put yeah. the full force of their power behind this. Uh, but I, I think they see this as being the easiest way for them to meet their climate goals uh, and also the easiest way to uh, create a more resilient supply chain. Uh, because let's face it, raising animals is a tough business. So you could ask any farmer, it is not yeah. easy. And there's so many foodborne illnesses you got to deal with, uh, you know, the slaughtering process. Right. You know, just the sell by dates. I mean, you name it. There's just there's a lot yeah. that goes into it. It is way easier uh, to slaughter a pea and uh, and to make it taste like meat. And so, you know, anybody <laughs> who's in the food business would much rather be dealing with these inputs so long as they can make it, you know, in a way that people are going to eat it and do it at a price that is as competitive, if not not, from a margin standpoint, uh, because it will they'll achieve all their, you know, for the most part, all their their uh, Paris and and COP, you know, related goals you know, by pivoting, you know, away from traditional proteins. Uh, so we, they, they get it. It's just, you know, trying to get them to get there faster. And that's where governments, you know, unfortunately have, have not stepped up yet. I like to, to end usually a little bit on, on the future. And I know we, we talked a lot about a bunch of different things that haven't sort of happened yet and, and hope we hope does happen. But right. if you look maybe, you know, three to five years down the line, what, what do you, what do you hopeful happens? Maybe where some of the sex successes and, and goals that maybe, you know, you and the team and the firm have going forward? Well, you know, we talked about policy. So obviously we just love for there to be a lot more movement on that front, but insofar as the capital markets, I would, you know, I, I expect there to be a lot more emphasis on uh, health, you know, sort of focus within these products because, 
you know, unfairly, but, you know, nonetheless, a lot of plant-based products like the Beyonds and Impossibles are perceived to be unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's going to be a lot more, you know, um, a lot more companies and demand for what we call, you know, just like a healthier for you version. Uh, so whether it's, you know, jackfruit or right. just other, you know, cleaner plant-based yeah. uh, options that are more whole food plant-based options, that's uh, probably the best way to describe it, I yeah. think will become more common uh, because I know like if you look at a Chipotle, you know, they don't want to put Beyond an Impossible on there because they just don't want to use a processed meat. Yep. But if somebody can come along and give them a jackfruit product that, you know, pulls like uh, pulled pork does, which jackfruit does, uh, I'm pretty sure that's going to end up on their menu uh, well before uh, Beyond or Impossible will. So right. uh, I think that's something you can expect. And what I hope to see is just a lot more adoption on the part of uh, you know QSRs and other fast food chains to put more plant-based products on their menu uh, and more consumers to to demand it. Uh, and I expect that will only continue. So it's it's I don't think it's much of a prediction. Uh, I think the biggest thing is just how much money is going into this space right now and how much more money I think will go into it in the future and how many more startups and funds are going to be focusing on this theme uh, so that, you know, before you know it, this is going to be a much bigger deal than it is currently, even though it feels like a big deal now, because it was a basically a zero deal, you know, 10 years yeah. ago, yeah, right, like, right. A, a pipsqueak five years ago. And now it's like on the lips of like just about every venture investor uh, on the planet is what's going on in alternative proteins and sustainable food. Uh, and I think it will be a more institutionalized, you know, sort of uh, investment ecosystem uh, in five or 10 years which means that for people who have their money at banks uh, or at a Fidelity, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to be a lot easier uh, to invest in the private markets. I think there's going to be a lot of progress made on, you know, removing some of the barriers for people to invest in these marketplaces like you have now with like the accreditor investor, you know, requirements, you know, so there's no requirement for you to, you know, bet on the lotto or go gambling, but right. you know, for some reason you can't yeah. invest, you know, in, in a startup. And so, so crazy. I think, I think that will change. And the good news about that is it will democratize the ability for people to put, you know, smaller dollar amounts into companies like this, which they just can't do right now. And that yep. will drive even more, uh, you know, investment and interest in this space and hopefully, you know, change consumer behavior as well. Amazing. Well, well thank you so much, Michael. This was, uh, Amazing. I think, you know, food, like we don't think, like you said, we think about climate is obviously this huge, huge, huge uh, issue at the top of the, at the top of the non-food chain, but the top of the chain of humanity, we talk about fossil fuels and we think of, of sort of cars, right. And, and sort of the movement of, of machines and things like this and what that uses. But like you said, I mean, food is, is probably pretty equivalent, if not if not above it in, in a lot of different aspects. So if we're speaking climate top of mind, it just seems like food would be one of the first things that should be mentioned and invested in and, and policy made behind it. Because obviously, it, like you said, there's so many ancillary benefits that come from progressing this industry and, and supply chain and just using technology to to get the most out of it that we can, right? And so I think that's a uh, that's a fascinating part about all this. So I, I appreciate you taking the time and best of luck. Thanks, man. Great chatting with you.